Church, open your Bibles. We are going to be back in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. And we are picking up in a sermon series that I have called Untangled. We're making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And, you know, this is one of those mornings where you notice that, okay, all right. If some of you have read ahead, you know this is a little interesting passage this morning, and it's a rather intimate passage, and as I read that passage for you this morning, I think that's going to become abundantly clear. I liken this morning to a man walking into Victoria's Secret, all right? And I'm just, I'm just saying, as a man, you've been in the mall, and I don't even know the status of malls. I mean, will we even have malls, you know, after, after the coronavirus? I don't know. But, you know, when we had malls and a man would walk in the mall, you kind of knew Victoria's Secret was over there, but, you know, you just didn't really do much with it. And if you ever walked into Victoria's Secret, it was just an awkward moment. It's like, you know, where do I go? What am I looking for here? This is, I seem very out of, a fish out of water, so I don't know what to do with this. And so awkward might be a good way to say uh, is, is the feeling that you as a man might have with Victoria's Secret. Well, today is the potential that you're going to feel some of that as we uh, wait our way, make our way into the passage. I want to remind you about something this morning. This morning I want to remind you that Christianity has been called a hot religion. What do I mean by that? Well, a cold religion would be a religion in which you are being called to kind of disassociate with life. That life is an illusion, some would say. And so you're really pursuing something that is more of nothingness. You're trying to detach from things. That has never been biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is one in which God stoops down to earth and enters into the very intimate details of his people's lives and the nitty-gritty. And you can't get more nitty-gritty than where we're going to be today. So get ready today because we are going to be talking straightforwardly about sex and about marriage. That's what this whole passage today is about. I want to remind you that last week we dealt with the part of the church that was the more libertine element of the church. So it was the element of the church that said, hey, we're free to do all kinds of things and we're free to join in with the sexual promiscuity of this culture. And Paul said, oop, time out. I, no, no, not quite. This week, we go to the opposite pole. If we dealt with the people on the left last week, we're dealing with the people on the right this week, and we're dealing with the people that are not libertines, but more of legalists. And these are the individuals that uh, are those that say, hey, um, you know, really, is there really even any use in a spiritual life for sex at all? And they may even be, be focusing on the fact that, uh, you know, the spiritual life is one that you'd be better off to go on a prayer retreat than you would to enter into sex because sex just changes your focus on so many things. And so that would be the perspective of the individuals that Paul's going to address this week. So let's listen as Paul tells us about marriage. And I want to also want to tune you in on one thing as I get ready to read the passage. Last week, we covered two quotes that were happening in the church and were being promoted by those libertine people that said, hey, let's go sow the wild oats. Those people were promoting two statements, and those were in quotes in your Bible last week. Here were the two quotes from last week. All things are lawful for me, and food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And those are the quotes that those people on the far left were using to say, hey, let's just go and engage in the sexual uh, appetites of our culture. This week, there's going to be one quote that Paul is going to launch his entire section, his entire uh, writing this week is going to launch from this one quote that's on the right-hand side. Let's see if you can pick it up. 
I'm, my Bible's open, yours is too, and I'm, I'm really encouraging you today to open your Bible, leave it open, or get your app and keep it open, because Paul's changing gears so many times this week, and he's, he's changing subjects and topics, and I want you to be able to follow along, because it's such a rich passage. I'm in chapter 7, verse 1, and this is what God writes through Paul. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, look at this, quotes, here it is. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, not I but the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband but is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But it, as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Lord, as we open ourselves today, this is a long passage and all kinds of nuances with it. Open our minds right now and let us talk very honestly with each other about something that matters to you, marriage and sex. And so we open ourselves today, Lord, to hear from you about those important topics. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Today, Paul wants to make clear what makes marriage work. That's what the topic is this week, is what makes marriage work. And Paul is going to address that from four aspects. So let's just dive right in. There's a lot here today, so let's just dive right in. And the first aspect of marriage that makes marriage work is the right components. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul says in order to make marriage work, you've got to have the right connections. It's every man who has his wife and every wife who has her husband. Why do I bring that up? Well, because in today's day and age, uh, simply saying that you have the right components, a man and a woman to make marriage, well, that's disputed, it's fractured, it's being redefined, and there's all kinds of permutations of what the society at least says today makes a marriage. And I just need for you to know, one woman, one man, 
That's biblical bedrock of Christianity. And I want you to notice that there's a statement that the Corinthians make that it's best for a man not to have relations with a woman, sexual relations with a woman. It's likely that members of the church thought that that was unnecessary to lead a godly life. And they were even promoting that if you were married, you should abstain from sex because it would derail your uh, spiritual life. That stands in such stark contrast to other parts of the Bible as well as this passage. But in Genesis, in the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2, this is the way that God puts it. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so you see that God is saying, I'm going to bring this man and this woman together. They're going to become one flesh. I'm going to make them suitable. Again, she's suitable for him. They're going to become one flesh, and they're going to be so united that they're going to be united in so many ways, financially and uh, relationally and, and sexually. They're going to become this one flesh, and they'll become so unified that they'll be one. They'll be peanut butter and jelly. They'll be coffee and cream. I mean, whatever the metaphors that you can use, they're going to be a perfect fit for each other. I've never had to say this so emphatically before. I've never had to, uh, you know, say it's a man and a woman. But we live in a day and age in which that <laughs> I have to say that. And I have to repeat that because that's contested so many times. I'd like to give a shout out today to marriage and the benefits of marriage. And I'm reading from an article today that's uh, from a magazine called The Week. It's a secular publication, actually. But I think they really put it well. Here's what they say. Want to help America's economy and yourself at the same time? Then get married. The advantages of raising kids in a stable household are well documented. Children of married parents are more likely to graduate high school, less likely to go to jail, and more likely to delay sexual activity. Kids from single parent homes are five times as likely to live in poverty. Men who marry, research has shown, are more productive at work, are better paid, and are more likely to be employed than unmarried counterparts. Economist Stephen Moore has pointed out that marriage is a far better social program than food stamps, Medicaid, public housing, perhaps even all of them combined. Yet despite the advantages of married life, single parent families have exploded. Today, more than 40% of American children are born out of wedlock. To restore the vigorous economic growth that built America's middle class, we need to restore the pro-growth institution of marriage. To that I say amen. That's a great thing. And uh, there's so many benefits that flow from that into our society. So again, what makes marriage work? Well, the first thing that makes marriage work, it may sound very obvious, but it's the right components. It's one woman and one man who are brought together under God. All right, the second thing that makes marriage work is mutuality. This is the longest section I'm going to talk about and likely the one that needs the most explanation. So right now you don't know what I mean by mutuality, but let me explain. Paul says here that an important aspect of marriage is sex. In fact, it's so important that he launches into this by saying that every husband owes his wife her conjugal rights. And I know that's a word that's a kind of a strange word now. In fact, every time I think of conjugal, I think of prison. I don't know why, but I think of prison. And so I think of conjugal visits in, in prison. And I, I hope Paul's not saying that marriage is like prison. I don't think that that's the combination that he's putting together here. Husbands, you owe your wives her conjugal rights. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying that you owe her what is, uh, what, is, what, is, is what she needs. 
And, you know, it's going to encompass far more than, uh, you know, just what happens in the bedroom. It's going to also extend into what might be termed intimacy. So a wife might need uh, today, uh, you know, the intimacy of a hug, the intimacy of a snuggle, or even, you know, a a back rub or a foot rub. I mean, that might be what is needed for her today. So he's really saying, I want you to focus upon what your partner needs. He's also saying, wives, also you have an obligation to give to your husband his conjugal rights and to have his needs met also. Paul is saying here, we are mutually involved with each other. We are mutual in the sense that we are meeting one another's needs. And then he drops this bomb. He drops this bomb because he says this, for the wife does not have authority over her own body the wife doesn't have authority over her own body and if he stopped right there it would be everybody in the ancient world that would be yes 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 exactly true but then Paul goes on and he says guess what and the husband does not have authority over his body because that is owned by his wife mic drop jaw dropping on the floor what did he just say in a society in the ancient world in which now the husband doesn't own his body but his wife does that is a radical statement that Paul's making right now so what is he driving at he's driving at this aspect of mutuality he's saying mutually you are owned by each other and you have the mutual willingness to serve one another and so you are in, in, in making every attempt in order to become this one flesh, in order to be obligated to serve one another repeatedly and find out what each other needs and meet that. And yes, that also does, again, extend to the bedroom. I love what uh, syndicated columnist Dave Barry wrote. He wrote uh, a lot of columns that are in the newspaper, but he also wrote a book called A Guide to Marriage. And he lists out in his book what women want and what men want. Here's what he says women want, to be loved to be listened to, to be desired, to be respected, to be needed, to be trusted, and sometimes just to be held. Here's what he said men want. Tickets to the World Series. That's it. You know, he's probably more right than we all, all know there. Paul's saying sex is an important part of marriage. It should be happening regularly and as often as a husband or wife need it. How much? Paul never says. Because his focus is so much on servanthood here that he's saying, you know, you're going to work that out in your marriage context. So let's keep all of this, uh, you know, in some level of perspective. This is not the only place that Paul writes about marriage. In fact, one of his greatest moments of writing about marriage is in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is what he says. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body or his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so Paul's saying, husbands, would you ever do anything to injure your wife or harm her in any way or ask her to do something that would be be detrimental to her? No, you wouldn't do that because it'd be the equivalent of taking a hammer and smashing your own thumb. And you'd never do that. So he's saying you're one flesh and you're brought together in this one flesh union and uh, you're, you're there to serve one another. 
Well, there's one more piece of this mutuality we need to explore together, and it's a time at which Paul says you would suspend sex or, or put that off with each other for a time, and he says that's in the instance of prayer. He's saying sometimes prayer is so needed, sometimes prayer is so important, you want all of your faculties, all of your emotions pushed into that, that environment of prayer that you would withhold having sexual relations with each other as husband and wife, But notice that he places some parameters around that of when he says you deprive one another. And this is what he says. There's three of them of conditions of when you deprive each other. He says it's by agreement for a limited time and that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It's by agreement. It's not one person making that. You're coming together to talk about that. We're going to not have sexual relations with each other so that we, for a limited time, this period of time, this week, this two weeks, whatever the period of time is, we may really devote ourselves to prayer because we want to be all in in being able to hear and engage God well. And so you would do that. Again, then the time ends and you fall into the normal practice again of sexual contact. You know, I can honestly think of other times where sexual contact might be uh, suspended in a marriage. Uh, one of them might be just for long periods of time where you're away. You're separated from each other, maybe for work or something like that. Uh, I can also think of times like maybe surgery, before or after surgery. There's just conditions of what the body's able to do or not do. And so you're sensitive to each other during those times, and you're working towards this idea of your mutuality. But every marriage should have a full and free expression of sexual intimacy because that's what God has designed. Well, we're going to continue on. I have two more things I want to point out here about what makes marriage work. But Paul takes a little interlude here. And the little interlude is, he says, you know what? I wish everybody is as I am. And he's talking specifically about his singleness. He says, I wish everybody could be single because there's some great benefits of that, of being able to serve God. Hold on to that thought for a minute. Two weeks from now, we're going to be talking specifically about uh, singleness and and celibacy and what those are and why some are able to practice that. But here's a little cliff notes. This week, Paul says, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. And not everybody has that gift. And he says, if you find yourself thinking a lot about that form of intimacy, human intimacy, human sexual contact, maybe an indication you don't have that gift And so he's saying, realize that about yourself. And again, we'll put a placeholder in that and we'll be coming back to that in a couple of weeks. All right, the third thing that makes marriage work is commitment. Specifically in verse 10, Paul begins to talk about marriage troubles. People who are having trouble in their marriage. And he gives a very general principle and then gets to the specifics. The general principle is this, stay married. Work through your difficulties. Hang in there. It can be difficult, but stay with it because you, again, you bring your commitment and your pledge to God into the marriage. However, he also talks about a specific instance, and it's when couples would separate. And this is what he says. You separate for the purpose of reconciliation. Anytime couples reach an impasse that's so big that they're called to separate, maybe they separate in different parts of the house, maybe they actually physically separate in different uh, homes, but he's saying the purpose of all of that is so that you would work things out and you would come back towards a whole marriage because that's what you're really seeking God to have, and so you're, 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 you're pushing into that. I will also just say for individuals that I've walk, seen walk through a separation, a long separation rarely works. 
So I would really say, have a separation that's for a period of time, and maybe even, again, a counselor or a third party that's helping monitor that time so that you're staying on track of attempting to work things out. I love what a woman said as she went to her lawyer. She said, "Uh, I want to get a divorce, and I really hate my husband, and I want to hurt him, so give me some advice. In addition to wanting to give, uh, get the gold and give him the shaft, the woman wanted to find out other ways that she could do him in. The attorney said, look, you're going to divorce the guy anyway, so for three months, don't criticize him. Speak only well of him. Build him up. Every time he does something nice, commend him for it. Tell him what a great guy he is and do that for three months. After he thinks he has your confidence and your love, hit him with the news and it'll hurt him even more. The woman thought, I can't go wrong with that. I'm divorcing the guy anyway. Why should I speak badly about him anymore? I'm going to only tell him good things about him. And so she complimented her husband for everything he did. For three months, she told him what a great man he was, how she was happy with their relationship. And after three months, they forgot about the divorce and went on their second honeymoon. And, you know, we wish that that was the way it always worked out, right? But sometimes, again, marriages are difficult And sometimes we just have to weather storms with commitment. Sometimes also, well, sadly, sometimes marriages do come to divorce. And this is not the only passage that deals with that. There's many others. Uh, Mainly, Jesus' words tell us how and when we might consider that option. And I'm really proud of the church because a couple years ago, in fact, one of the elders in the room today helped to write a white paper on behalf of the church And the white paper spells out in detail our theology about marriage and divorce. And if you ever want to see that, email me. I'll I'll email you the PDF file that has that. But again, it's not for the faint of heart. 35 pages. So, I mean, we spell out in detail what we are believing about those important issues of life. And, uh, you know, and that really, I mean, it was worthy of our time to do that. Marriage is never easy. It's always going to take commitment. I have one more piece I want you to see today. And the last thing that makes marriage work is abundant blessings. There were some people that were saying this. They were saying, if we are now married to these non-Christians, we should divorce the non-Christian spouse and marry a, a believing spouse. And this, of course, was a pretty big deal in the Corinthian church. Why? Because almost all of them were first century or first generation believers. They, they had, nobody in their city had ever trusted Christ before. They were the first ones in. And so their spouses looked at them and said, you know, you're not normal anymore. I mean, before you went to the temple and you did the, the, the temple worship along with me, and now you know this, this guy Jesus and you're not conducting your life the way you did before. And so what is going on with you? And Paul is saying that some were saying, uh, hey, let's just divorce those, those non-Christian unbelieving spouses and let's go get believing ones. And furthermore, they were saying, if we stay engaged with these non-Christians, it's going to stain the overall marriage. So there's another reason why we should just jettison the relationships with these non-Christian spouses. Paul says, hold on a minute. Let me set you straight. He says, first, if you have an unbelieving husband or wife and they are willing to stay with you, do it. If you have an unbelieving spouse and they're wanting to divorce you, allow it. He says, there is... uh, abundant blessing if you will just remain in the place where God has placed you. And this abundant blessing is really flowing from verse 14. And verse 14 is the most controversial part of this entire passage. Here's what it says. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, 
And the unbelieving wife is made holy by her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And this whole passage here surrounds that idea of holy. The first thing I want to say is, holy is not saved. Holy is not saved. So some might look at that passage and say, well, just because one spouse is in Christ, it automatically makes the other spouse in Christ. That's not what he's saying. And, and here's why. Here's our greatest evidence of that. It's verse 16. And Paul says, stay with your unbelieving spouse because guess what? You might actually be the catalyst for them to trust Christ. You might be the catalyst for them to follow Jesus on their own. So if holiness is not saved, if that's not what Paul's saying here, what is holiness? Holiness is also uh, translated by other uh, people in this passage as sanctified. It's set aside for a holy purpose. And things that were in the Old Testament that were sanctified like this were, for instance, the candlestick that was used in the temple. The candlestick by itself was not holy, but when it was placed within the temple, it became holy. And Paul is telling us something here about the unbelieving spouse and the believing spouse. He's saying the believing spouse brings some blessings that flood out, abundant blessings, to the whole family as a result of their relationship with God. So on the contrary, it's not like the relationship is going to have a detrimental effect by the unbelieving person. It's going to have a positive effect because of the one that is the believer. And so again, he's saying that's at least the witness of this one believing spouse that now is a demonstration to the whole family of what God's like. But I think the the blessings even extend beyond that. To the level of children, children he assumes here are being raised within the context of the church and so they're witnessing individuals who are now modeling worship and are modeling prayer and are modeling service, hopefully modeling love. And he's saying all of these have an effect upon the the children. The children still have to make their own decision to trust Christ, but that's having an effect upon the children for all of their lives. And so he's saying God is bringing abundant blessings to the marriage even if there's only one of the spouses that follows Christ. All right, what can you act on today as a result of this passage? I have one thing I want to encourage singles to do, and I have another thing that I want married people to consider. If you're single today, you have a big decision to make, and maybe you're not making that today. You're making this over some course of time, but you're asking yourself, do I have the gift of singleness? Uh, If I have the gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy, then I am really able with some level of self-control to navigate life and really gain my my, my sense of intimacy and oneness from the Lord himself. And again, two weeks from now, we're going to have so much more to say about that. But if that's not you and you're saying, "Mm, I'm not sure that's me, I I do have some of those thoughts and some of those desires, then you're continuing in that period in which you're asking God for the provision of that spouse. And so you're in the process of really always making that determination. What is God's best for me? What is God's will for me? And you're not, you're not sub best if, if you say, no, I do have that gift of singleness and I can pursue that and that's for the glory of God. Well, again, we'll tap, we'll tap on that again in a couple of weeks and I think that will become clearer for you. If you're married, I have something I want you to do this week, maybe even today. And I'm calling you to have a conversation with your spouse about two topics, about sex and prayer. I'm calling you today, if you're married, to have a conversation about what Paul says about sex, 
about the mutuality of sex, about the fact that you're designed to be in servanthood to one to another, about the fact that you don't own your own body anymore. It's given over to your spouse. How's your sex life? How do Paul's words affect you? Have a discussion about that. The second discussion is about your prayer life. Paul is assuming here that if you're going to suspend some time in having sexual contact, you're going to devote that to prayer, and more or less he's saying, prayer together. So how is your prayer life together, husband and wife? How, do you, uh, how are you reflecting, again, that oneness through your prayer life together? Maybe that's a place where you need to give some attention, and maybe even you're giving some attention to that in saying, we're going to suspend our sexual union for a period of time, whatever that is, in order that we might really lean into prayer with each other. And that might be especially true if you have some pressing need. That's what Scripture says. That's Paul right here. That's God right here for us. And he's saying do that because you want to have a healthy marriage. And that's one of the ways that you're going to pursue doing that. Well, I hope that the walk through Victoria's Secret was okay for you today. Uh, If nothing more, I'm hoping that you're relieved that God cares about this aspect of our lives and that the church can actually talk about it in wholesome and good ways. God's designed this for us, and so this is a good thing for us to be able to lean into. Here's what I want you to hear. God has given us everything we need in order to make marriage work. Let's pray. Father, this passage is uh, <laughs> it's one that some might uh, skip over. I'm glad we don't, and I'm glad you have spoken to us today. We want singleness to be celebrated in this church as something that at times is uh, good and part of your will and a gift to members of our church. And we also want marriage to be celebrated as full and rich and lasting and having all the components that go into a couple that comes together as one flesh. Thank you, Lord, for your constant uh, nourishing of us through your Holy Spirit and your word. We lean into that today and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.